hello, one, two, this is how I talk, usually. And then I get excited sometimes, but I might not get excited because we're talking about depression, so it <laughs> might be more like this the entire time. It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. On this episode of our program, we have a story about a guy who works very hard for a long time to figure out who he is because he knows he is not like everyone else. He's not one of the normies. His childhood is different. His influences are unusual. His mind works in a way that other minds don't. His family is anything but typical. And eventually, his weirdness becomes kind of a superpower. My name is uh, Michael. I go by Open Mike Eagle, and we're in my home in South Los Angeles. Mike, his wife Tiffany, and their young son were just moving into their new house when we spoke. Hot day, windows open. He's in the LAX flight path, so it gets a little noisy. Loads of toys and youth athletic equipment fill the place. Open Mike Eagle makes music that can be characterized as art rap, indie rap, depression rap, anxiety rap. Six full albums. That first track you heard was called Brick Body Complex. This one is Ziggy Starfish Anxiety Raps off his EP Split Pants at Soundcheck. Told you he had anxiety. Mike's a podcast host, lead actor in the upcoming film It's a Party, and along with Baron Vaughn, former guest on this program, he created a variety stage show called The New Negroes, which is becoming a Comedy Central show. He co-authored a study for the National Institutes of Health on brain activity during freestyle rapping. Does a lot of things. Full disclosure, Mike's a friend of mine. We've worked together. I like him. He grew up in Chicago, Southside. In a pretty active, actively violent area. What was the living situation? I spent the majority of my childhood living with my grandparents because uh, my mom was kind of in and out of the picture. And your dad was? My dad was out here in L.A. How early do you remember depression hitting? I remember more of like an everyday sort of isolation. Like it felt sad, but I would like, I had a lot of ways to distract myself. Like it was my grandmother, my grandfather, me and my sister. Me and my sister had a room. My grandfather hung out in their bedroom. My grandmother hung out in the living room. And me and my sister hung out in our room. We all just watched separate televisions. I had, you know, video games. I had books. I had every toy I could ever want. Um, Like, my grandparents were pretty, like, um, like, not quite middle class, but definitely, like, upper working class. And we didn't have much of a social life. And I remember 
that being like a permanent thing partly because of the environment we lived in we just like weren't allowed to like play outside really yeah like we played outside like once a month maybe for like a couple hours if we happened to look out of the window and see some of the other kids we knew from the building outside then like we could ask maybe could we go outside and it wouldn't always be yes and it was a lot of different kinds of kids like we were kind of nice kids and some of the other kids were kind of like troublemaking kids and you know so um all of that created for a situation where we were inside almost constantly were all those other kids outside running around no not usually yeah it just wasn't that type of time space gang banging in chicago was like really real like we lived in kind of this high-rise weird subdivision thing across the street from us was like a project building and it was not uh infrequent to just hear like gunfire you know from over there it's kind of a rap cliche to grow up on the streets in a rough part of town mike grew up indoors near those streets watching tv reading thinking isolated to use his term but in that isolation he discovers this whole world of music rap but not just rap a lot of my TV watching was watching MTV constantly. Um, and that's everything from pop music to rap music to uh, to hair metal to to watching the hair metal transition into grunge. Like I had like a front row television seat for all of that. And, and I was always into exploring all the music that was there. And I'm a polar bear with words for a fancy song. I think it's the first verse from Little Miss Can't Be Wrong. Fuck you, I like to spin doctors. Is that dude's Finn's father or just an imposter? The new internet things to be pretend awkward, non prescription things. My man Dave Gahan is in Depeche Mode. Used to have a crush on Michelle A from Death Row. This business is pop charts and who gets the top part? I still be wanting to mention Callista Blockhart. It's on the record, I'm sorry, it was me, sir. Riding down Strong and Bumper 97 Weezer. Don't know all the lyrics, but I hit the keywords. All my favorite tunes are from when phones had receivers. And a lady in a home away to meet her. Gonna form a union like a local group of teens. And after that, it's like, okay, um, I'll check Nickelodeon to see what's happening there. And if that's not a show I'm into, then I'm just into MTV. And and if MTV's not showing something I'm into, then I'm into what was called the Comedy Channel at oh, the time. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Later merged with Ha, which yeah. was the other comedy channel. There you go. Okay. And then it became Comedy Central, which I'm very familiar with now. And now that he's working with Baron Vaughn on a Comedy Central show, Mike has grown up to inhabit the worlds that he obsessed over as a kid. When did you start to make music? That question reminds me of this really contentious relationship I had with a group of kids in a classroom that I was in when I was in third grade. When I was in the third grade, there were a group of fourth graders that were also in our class these fourth graders used to have a ball picking on me um because i was the kid that had all the answers in school and raised my hand to answer every question i was really into school like super into it like i really into like figuring out what the right answer is felt good yeah it felt great so these kids used to 
you know, socially torture me a lot. But these like I was intrigued with them because they were really into rap music and they used to like beat on the table and like say certain songs like and like I would go back like I would hear how they would beat out the song and then I would go home and then when the video came on I would see does that sound like what they were doing oh, that sounds kind of different like it's interesting how they hear it this way but I hear it this way what were the songs uh the one I really remember most was Express Yourself by N.W.A. Ah, okay um they were doing the accurate drum beat, but when I heard it, I didn't hear the drum beat. I heard like the bass line. So I was like, oh, that's weird. You know, but like that kind of opened me up. Like to this day, I beat on stuff, you know, to and try to kinda, figure out a song. No, just at, at, at that point, um, just wanting to express myself by like making beats on things kind of happened. So that was like probably the earliest I ever thought of like, doing something musical but i used to i used to daydream about being a rock star when i was in first and second grade were you a like a rock and roll guitar yep. playing yep. specifically it's interesting how mike retains the fact that the older kids in his words psychologically tortured him but then he pivots to talk about how that essentially got him started making music he used his outsider status to invent, to incubate ideas. When high school rolled around, he was ready to take those beats he talked about and put words to them. For the most part, it's called ciphering, and it's just a bunch of people standing in a circle kind of taking turns freestyling. You know, maybe somebody's beatboxing, maybe somebody's playing a beat, and we're all just taking turns rapping. Sometimes you're going off the last person's idea. Sometimes you're introducing something completely new. You know, but it's just all straight off the head, improvised freestyling. And I did that. When you were ciphering, was that, did you consider that a hobby? Or was it was just a fun thing to do, like shooting hoops or something? Um, I read a book when I was 16 or maybe 15 called Bomb the Suburbs um, by this guy named Upski, who, um, aside from being a published author, was a guy who I would see when I went to like, the hip hop spots in Chicago because he was local and he was still very much a quote unquote b-boy break boy um, so when I read this book like I was interested in hip hop culture but when I read this book it kind of laid out that if you want to associate yourself with hip hop you can't just be um, a bystander like you have to do the things you have to contribute. Yeah. Um, so it laid out, okay, graffiti, emceeing, breakdancing, and DJing. Like, these are the things that you have to do some measure of these things. Like, if you're going to say that you are hip-hop, you have to. Like, you can't just dress it or talk like it. You have to be doing the things. So it was, it was to answer your question, it felt like way more important than a hobby. It felt like this is what I must do. So this is where Mike goes from standing outside and watching a depressed person's default perch to community member. Meanwhile, school was very important to Mike, but because his brain does what it does, it got complicated. Imagine being in a place where school is so important to you, like all of the fucked up things that can happen to you at school, like how much extra weight I put on all of that shit. You know, and I would like go home and think all night about what had happened at school that day. And, and you know what I mean? It was just 
You replay uh, it? All the time. And, and give a lot of, like, real emotional weight to it that was really unfounded. But that was literally just because it's all I had, mm. you know? Um, and, yeah, hip-hop was a great thing to go to because before that, I never felt like I really had a social identity. Like, I was always a kid who used to float kind of from group to group, taking on the characteristics of whatever the group was and trying to, like, find a way to get along with everybody because I didn't have, like, a very defined sense of who I was relative to other people. Um, so hip-hop was the first thing I was able to do that really felt like, I guess, a meritocracy. Hmm. It felt like, oh, if I work hard at this thing, and and I can get demonstrably good at these things, then I can define myself by how good I am at these things. And that kind of was life changing for me, like as a social interactor to have like some guidelines to define myself as in terms of like my self image. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty typical with people with depression who just try to pour everything into one of their pursuits yes. because they, they're not grounded in themselves. Exactly. You know, you, you don't think enough of, you think that who you are isn't good enough. So you go out and yeah, try achieve. to find something else to, to help you feel validated. High school ends and Mike Eagle goes to Southern Illinois university because I didn't try very hard in high school. <laughs> It's a, it's a, a school you could get into. Yes, it's a catch-all <laughs> state school. Like I did really good on my ACT because I was always really a good test taker, and so like, you know, they were excited to have me. Yeah, because <laughs> that helps them that they have kids with you good know, scores. Yeah, yeah. Um, but my grade point average was trash. Mike had found a social world where he belonged and contributed in Chicago, but now he had to give up everything he knew to move five hours south to Carbondale, Illinois. Kind of had to figure out who he was all over again. You know what, what it is with me? I really, I get very anxious about systems I don't understand. Um, so th that entire thing was very daunting for me. Uh, going from high school to college because I didn't understand dorms. I didn't understand like cafeterias like, like that, like in that sense, like a meal card. Like um, I didn't understand like RAs and I didn't, you know, like, I didn't know how to get like my schedule for a while. Like it, it's just, I was just drowning in the systems and I get really anxious about that. Like when I don't have the experience of how something's supposed to work. And so I feel like I spent the whole first year just kind of terrified, mm -hmm. you know, um, I had asthma real bad when I was little, my asthma came back when I went to college. And, and I think part of it was air quality. I think also part of it was crazy anxiety. Like I would just wake up just not being able to breathe. It is called Carbondale. It, I should have thought about that. <laughs> Glad to and help. maybe not gone to, to Coal Town. <laughs> it wasn't just his lungs and schedule that were suffering, though. I think I experienced peak loneliness in college. I got into a situation uh, my sophomore year where 
There was some fumble of my financial aid forms between my mom and my dad. And my mom had, after I graduated high school, she'd moved into a house in Gary, Indiana, which is the worst place on earth. And she moved into a house where I didn't have a bedroom. But through this financial aid bungle, I had gotten money for classes, but I hadn't gotten money for housing. Um, and I didn't have anywhere to go if I didn't do school. So I was essentially at school homeless for a semester. And I spent that entire semester like crashing in different people's dorm rooms, crashing in some off-campus people's places, uh, and just like had a series of experiences to where I had this moment where I was like, I don't have a family. I just don't have a family. And so I'm going to stop thinking of them as people that can be reached out for when needed. And I'm going to completely depend on my friends because they are the ones who are actually helping me out right now. And it kind of just warped my brain. Like I'm still kind of working my way out of that a little bit. Cause like I have missed funerals and shit with my family and all of that. Cause I decided that you people don't mean anything to me anymore. Because when I need something, I can't turn to you at all. How successful was that? The, like shutting down your family, saying you're out of my life. I mean, it, it was oddly easy. Yeah. It, uh, it just it, it just there was fallout from it that I wasn't really taking into account. Like basically it turned me into somewhat of a sociopath, you know, um, and I've since realized that, but I'm not completely free from that. You know, like I, I, I did a very powerful adjustment to my values in that moment based on what I felt like I needed to do to survive emotionally and economically. Um, and it, it was like a 15 year decision, mm. you know, and and I'm still like mending relationships there yeah well it sounds like i mean it's trauma when you when you're going to school and you have nowhere to live yeah it was bad it was real like this music from that time i can't listen to like i just can't like when the songs come on i like it it takes me back to certain nights that were just like the most difficult lonely emotional like because it's not even just the loneliness it was also the constant like awkwardness and intimidation of having to like ask people to let me sleep there yeah you know constantly every day yeah and like living in bags you know what i mean and i didn't have a car or anything like it was just it was bad so this is mike hitting bottom no family no money unchecked depression came within a sliver of a grade of flunking out he's spiraling but he doesn't quit he gets housing for the spring, and it's easier to study when you have somewhere to stay, so his grades go up. And he tries counseling. But it wasn't a good experience with counseling at the time because I was, I was lying to my therapist a lot. About what? About everything. Like, I was just, I would basically just invent whatever it was I wanted to talk about because I didn't really, I was very afraid of him judging me for some reason. I was deathly afraid of that. Like, I just thought that would be the end of my life if my therapist thought I was a bad person. So I used to just, like, I'd take one of the things that was kind of bothering me and make it where I just talked about that the whole time. Like, it was so important. It wasn't, you know, I just wanted to get through it. And I didn't really want to, like, be vulnerable. Like, as much as I understand, like, now, like, that's the whole point. Right. Then I was just like, 
uh, I don't know how to do this, so I'm going to just do it this way. Why were you giving this counselor so much power? Like, why was it so important? I don't, I, I think that, I think that there's just, there was just something in me at the time. And maybe it's still there. We're just like, I don't, I don't want to be completely vulnerable. Like, I don't want to give anybody the full picture. Yeah. Because I don't, I don't. Especially at that time, I just felt like I couldn't, I didn't know, I, did, I wouldn't have known how to deal with that. And, and, and my understanding now is that that person never would have judged me. Like, it would have been the worst professional ever if they had, you know, if they had, you know, tried to um, ascribe any, like, negativity to me based yeah. on what I was saying. But I just didn't, I didn't have that sort of understanding at the time. And I was just very fear-based. And I think maybe... To take it one step further, maybe I didn't all the way know what was bothering me yet either and didn't really want to go there. You didn't want to discover what was at the root of it something, all. Something like that. Did you ever discover what was at the root of it all? Oh, yeah. Well, that's kind of where we need to take the break, right? The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illness, not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having a lot of laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression, a way of maybe demystifying depression a bit, make it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. This is a serious disease. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. That can be an awkward conversation, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use. What to say, what not to say. Stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thanks so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. song called 95 radios by our guest open mike eagle before the break mike revealed that there had been a very specific event in his life that was at the root of a lot of his problems did you ever discover what was at the root of it all oh yeah and so let's follow up what was it well and unfortunately i can't completely divulge it here okay but i've had some um some really intense childhood trauma that's outside of everything that I just described to you, but it was the kind of thing that I just shunted away, but um, is even part of the reason why I didn't want to present the full picture. It's part like, like in terms of being afraid of the judgment of it, like it all goes back to like this kind of childhood trauma stuff that I dealt with and I'm really just now dealing with. Yeah. Suppression can be a, mm -hmm. a powerful, powerful thing. Absolutely. So this, I think, is huge. Mike didn't want to tell me, or tell you and me, what the event was. I still don't know what it was. 
But that's not the important thing. The important thing is that Mike told Mike what it was. He was honest with himself. You don't have to shout to the world everything that ever happened to you. But if you say it out loud to yourself, seems like a good step. Mike never had a huge breakthrough moment in therapy, but he was seeking help and on the right track. And just as he had done growing up, he got out of himself. He got out of his head. He found other people and he blossomed. Because in my turning things around in college, like I pledged a frat, I was homecoming king. Like I created all of these like social situations that were very stimulating. He hosted an open mic night there in college, performing under the name Open Mike, which seems confusing. So twice now, this guy who lived in his head and kind of dreaded the world and felt like he didn't belong in it, he found his way to the world. It's a pattern. So what does he do after college? Well, he leaves it all behind and moves far away. Also a pattern. Um, but I felt at some point like I was part of a momentum wave in that where you click up with all these people in Carbondale and everybody moves back to Chicago and they just do the same shit there, you know, while they have day jobs. And I just like didn't want to do that. Mm. So I moved out here. Mike planned to go to grad school in psychology, but needed a bit of time to get all his application materials together and decided to do that in L.A. So I came out here in 04 and I was working for AmeriCorps and I was in AmeriCorps Vista, which means you're basically a slave to a nonprofit um, where you're technically available 24 seven. So they work you 40 to 50 hours a week for a stipend of I think I was getting like nine hundred dollars a month. In L.A.? In L.A. You can't live on $900 a month. It was impossible. Yeah. Um, and at like about six or eight months in the middle of that, and you're supposed to do it for a year. Like they really grief you if you don't do it for the year. Um, you said fuck it and got a job. And that kind of changed my entire life plan. Yeah. Like that decision did. Is that when the music got serious? Yeah. Um because ultimately, the, the psychology thing was an interest-based momentum wave more than it was something that I actually really wanted to do. Not that I knew what I really wanted to do at that time, but I knew people out here who did independent rap professionally. Uh, like, there was a place where they all got together. There was a legacy, and there was an end to kind of, like, go embed myself with them and kind of learn how the business worked. So I was here um, doing day jobs from 2004 to 2000. I got laid off in 2009. Um, always working in schools or teaching or working with kids, anything based around that. Um, but every night I was basically doing like a rap internship with this collective. Uh, it's called Project Blowed out here. Project Blowed is an influential underground hip-hop crew and record label in L.A. Here's Mike back in those days as part of the group Thirsty Fish. Monday, Tuesday, oozes off the clock like Ali's canvases and watch hands freeze and cease. Stuck like money in a dead man's squeeze. Wednesday's TikTok paces quick and then with images of digging on your own self-interest flash. So it's not that bad that we 
weekend's coming if you need that cash. One last chance. Last show of the summer. But you gotta get a number because the tickets go fast. It's a five-day work week kicking your ass. I talked to a lot of people about the times in their life before they really recognized their mental health issues or before they got serious about treating those issues. And I'm sometimes struck, as I am here with Mike Eagle, how the mind seems to set about treating itself sometimes. And the life decisions you make, the creative projects you do, the books you choose to read, serve a therapeutic purpose. It's like you have a tiny, subtle therapist living in your own head. What was the process of establishing a voice that was that was different from what anybody else was doing. See, that part actually came pretty easy to me because I always had a vision of what kind of rap music I wanted to make. Uh, what first album, Unapologetic Art Rap? Yeah, you know what I mean? And I, and I had made... I had made an album before that that I'd never showed anybody called The Meditation Hustle. Like, and, and I had always kind of had this distinct kind of way I wanted to approach rap, and I knew it was different. But that the difficulty there was that, like I said, I was embedded in this kind of rap collective out here where that wasn't how you did things. Mm. The prevailing notion at that time was that you had to earn that through like showing like like through being relatable first mm. slice of life yeah like, kind of thing you had to you had to show that you could speak whatever the popular language of the time was and then you could take people in another direction but i never wanted to do that because i never felt that relatable you know, I've oh. never felt that. Like you didn't feel in touch with the world as it was. Exactly. So to me, that felt like the hardest thing to do in the world was to try to like make stuff that was intentionally relatable. Like, Cuz you've never related. I've never have. It's a sheltered for battered artists. But nightly contest to see who's been smacked the hardest. We only press half the charges cuz we love the punishment like any other passive martyrs. It's the Stockholm Syndrome. My house full of runaways is not gonna get home. It's not but overly macho men go. We kill bravado with a steel Silverado. 12-step program for pills or the bottle. And right down the hill from a brothel. Sorry, sex addicts. Sometimes the party gets cracking. Proving to a soundtrack of REM sadness. We use the term very loosely. We play bidwisp and serve cherry juice drink. That's a track called Art Rap Party. Mike's music has gained him a steadily growing level of recognition and success and he's branched out movies tv he co-hosts a pro wrestling podcast called tights and fights and all that is great he's achieved a lot but that as we know does not erase depression you can be winning a marathon and still have depression wrapped around your ankle as you run my tough moments really come when like i am like people can like a lot of times people I admire are like mental giants to me and then I can really easily fall back into not knowing who I am really easily cuz you just put yourself aspirationally towards them well cuz like I like I'll I'll find myself where I'm sitting in a room with people that I respect and I just don't have words suddenly because like my my old a bowl of mush social self comes back because I'm so nervous. Mm. You know, like I lose all of the rationale of like, well, this is a person, you <laughs> know, like that's a person. But like if, if it's a person who I really like a lot, like I'll fall apart. Yeah. You know, like as and as 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 validating as my path has been, like in those moments, I 
can't hold on to any of that. Is that something more than fandom? I do think so. What do you think it I is? I think it's like, you know, you. I think I idolize people. You know, I think I put people on pedestals that are like way too high. But it's a function of what their work, whatever it is, from, you know, rappers to professional wrestlers or whatever. Like what their work means to me is like really intense, you know, but it cuts through a lot of like my self-image repair work that I've done. Have you worked with some of those people? Yeah, like absolutely. Stuff? Absolutely. How does that go? It's terrifying <laughs> at first, you know. Um, I mean, currently I'm working on a television show. And for Comedy Central, yeah, you know, like the old comedy channel, like I'm working there. Now. You're going to be on the other side of the screen. Yeah. And, and it's it's very daunting in that sense. And like, how did I get here? Do I deserve to be here? Are they going to find me out? Are they going to find me out? Like, you know, imposter syndrome is very, very real with me and um i often have to like sit and really remind myself like i have a seat at the table for a reason i i deserve to be here uh i i do good stuff you know like i have to really how your inner voice sounds (laughs) (laughs) i'm maybe tweaking it a little right now what do you do to deal with that I, I do, like, I literally have to have those internal conversations. I really do. Like, I really, I'll be sitting in the writer's room. Well, when we were in production, sitting in the writer's room, and I'll have an idea, and I'll be like, these people are real writers. I probably shouldn't say this, you know? <laughs> people like, are real writers here to work on your show. Right. Y- yeah, yeah. And and I have very strong opinions about what I think is funny and what I don't think is funny. But how much do I want to go to bat with people who do this professionally? Like, what... What joke hill am I willing to die on? <laughs> you know? Well, you and I have talked about this before, about collaboration and... And how I hate it? Yeah. And how you hate it and how I hate it. <laughs> We've talked about this whilst collaborating. Yes, we have. Before. I think that made our collaboration easier. Even stronger. <laughs> um, but... I wonder if it's like a... I mean, everything I see now is filtered through depression because of the current gig. Mm. Um but it's sort of a way of protecting yourself from from getting into those situations. Absolutely. It know? really is. But potentially suffering too because you're not getting feedback from anybody. You're mm. just you're just making your thing. Like there's no chance that other people can improve it. Yeah. But there's this sense that if I show it to someone else, I'll be exposed. Yep. And then in come the the jackbooted soldier to, <laughs> to, to drag you away. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, uh, precisely. We're not necessarily talking about rap albums at this point. It's also life and relationships and stuff. And and I have discovered though, and I feel like we talked about this too. Like with every project that I put out, I become more keenly aware that at some point before the release of the public. I do need people's opinions, you know, I (laughs) do need like if there's two or three people that I trust, I need them to weigh in. Yeah. You know, Uh, it it is a lot easier, though, with music and independent music, especially because the stakes are ultimately pretty low. Mm. You know, Um, it's not a lot of entities being invested in a lot of not a lot of money at stake. Like when it comes to this TV stuff. 
I mean, we're talking corporate. We're talking quarterly financial reports. We're talking about people's jobs. Yeah. If sponsors have to like it, yeah, a certain amount. Exactly. Like, cause it, it, it means more. It's not, there's not the room, the unearned room to be as whimsical as there is when you're working independently. Are you a success? Yeah, absolutely. When did you start knowing that? Honestly, when I got the chance to do stuff like Wits. I used to host this comedy and music radio show called Wits, and Mike was a guest a few times. Here he is with singer Janie Winterbauer at one of those shows, performing the They Might Be Giant song Birdhouse in Your Soul, which Mike says is his favorite song. I'm your only friend, I'm not your only friend, but I'm a little glowing friend, but really, I'm not actually your friend, but I am. Looking airy in the alley for the light switch, who watches over you? Make a little birdhouse in your soul, not to put too fine a point on it, say I'm the only being in your bonnet, make a little birdhouse in your soul. Like when I got a chance to be presented to people on those sorts of platforms, that's when I knew that like my approach was working. There's a a standard that I use for for music and it was all based on when I was in college a long time ago and I played De La Soul's Three Feet High and mm. Rising for my roommate. Oh, what an album. And my roommate listened to it and he said, I've never heard anything like this. Yeah. And that phrase has always stayed with me. I've never heard anything like this. And the first time I heard your music, I said that out loud mm. at my desk. That's, oh, that's great. <laughs> and then, you know, and then I'm like, I, people got to hear this. Yeah. I mean, but that's, that's the risk too, right? Because yeah. there are some people who are wired so that when they say, when they hear something and their reaction is, I haven't heard anything like this. Some people's are, are some people are wired to share. Yes. Some people are wired to drag and drop that directly into the trash. <laughs> It's kind of cool the way Mike keeps going from these isolated worlds, his grandparents' apartment, homeless in college, Los Angeles, and then he gets the hang of things, often with other people, and always by expressing himself. So let's talk comedy. Rap and comedy are not exactly strangers. There's an unpleasant history of comedians making fun of rap by rapping. And let's not forget, or maybe let's, the tradition of comedy skits on rap albums. Mike Eagle, who soaked in both comedy and music his whole life, moves more nimbly through these two worlds. There is a significant portion of my at least creative mind, but definitely information processing mind that is very much the voice of a stand-up comic. Well, there is a lot of similarity in terms of economics of phrasing. Yeah, absolutely. Like, absolutely. what can you pack in in a certain way that's going to deliver the result? And what want? picture can you paint, you know, with the fewest amount of words and how how it takes so much crafting mm -hmm. to identify the relationship of the rhythm of the words to how impactful the content is. Yeah. Like, it's just mind-blowing to me. And it's, I think it's a lot harder than rap. I think it's so much harder. I think that, like, 
it's a different skill set for sure. And there's things that, you know, of course, rappers can do, the comics can, vice versa. But I think that overall, I think that what stand-ups do is just infinitely harder. I mean, part of the reason this show exists is I realized how good comics were at phrasing something that connects with an audience that didn't know other people thought the same thing. Absolutely. And they laugh because of the relief yeah. of, oh, I'm not alone. Yeah. Like, other oh, oh, this. I've, oh, that thought has been rattling around the back of my head for years or months or yeah. weeks. And, oh, this person unlocked it. And that's great. Is music therapy for you? Is it therapeutic? Is it your treatment? What, what role does it have? What role does your vocation have in your uh, mental health life? I think that the greatest uh, resource that it gives me is the ability to throw myself into situations I am afraid of. But that is after music is made. Like this is like the act of presenting music to people, mm -hmm. which is fucking terrifying. <laughs> this is like, you know, going on tour and and going on bigger tours and opening for really huge acts. And like I said earlier, like ending up with a seat at the table with people you idolize. Like music provides those opportunities for growth for me because it provides like these opportunities for me to be standing on the cliff of like my deepest fears and kind of have no choice but to jump. You put yourself in that situation. Exactly. Yeah. I've talked already about this idea of people treating their own depression through the conscious or unconscious decisions they make. And I just, I keep thinking about it as I listen back to this interview with Mike Eagle, a bookish music nerd, isolated indoors in Chicago, dealing with trauma and depression, could isolate further and collapse. Instead, he uses what he's learned to creatively blossom in a very social field. And he studies psychology, which I don't think is an accident. Mike spent some time recently with the rapper, actor, and inventive artist Gene Gray. And he says he learned a lot about another therapeutic idea, being present in the moment in this case within the context of performing, of sharing yourself with the world. And it's applicable even if you will never perform a rap concert. Okay, I have, what, five albums or something like that? And that's probably, like, a catalog of, like, 80 songs or whatever. Like, I can... Anytime somebody says, here, come do this show, I can organize any yeah. 10 or 12 of these songs, and that's my performance. And you're kind of like, you know, we're, we're like, like, that's the job mm -hmm. is that. But what she helped me realize is that is the laziest way to do my job. It mm. is the lazy, like, that is the way that is like easy for me. And, oh, you know, if an audience is familiar with me already, then it'll be fine, you yeah. know, but like. If we're talking capital A audience, we're talking about audience in the abstract and me, I need to do something different. I need to do something I've never done before. I need to do something that day. You need to present to the audience the the experience of you experiencing something. Yeah. And it'd be really helpful if it was something that 
happened yesterday or something that happened this morning (laughs) or something that something about the event we're all at right now like and i've taken that into like like a lot of my performances this year and it's just made everything so much more fucking fulfilling for me and for the audience what do you know now about mental illness that you wish you knew a long time ago that it's very important that you trust somebody enough to tell them everything do you have somebody that you could do that with? Yeah, I have a bunch of people. And the thing is, I always did have people. I just didn't know how important it was to actually do it. Mm. Like, hence my first therapy experience. Yeah. Like that person, their professional job is to hear everything. Yeah. And it's because that's really important. Because it's like, part of what I held on to a long time was just like, just not thinking it's okay to be who I am. And so it was really important to be able to lay out everything about myself and hear somebody say, that's okay. And you're not going to get that. If you don't tell everybody. Exactly. Or tell somebody everything. Everything. Yeah. 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 No, but when, before I was diagnosed with depression, which was in my thirties, I didn't want to, I was falling apart and, and my wife was saying, you need to go talk to a doctor my reasoning, I didn't want to waste the doctor's time. Mm-hmm. And that made total sense to me, mm-hmm. despite the fact that that is what a doctor does. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's hard to give yourself permission. I mean, that's. Yeah, permission. permission. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Permission to receive help. Um, what's, uh, what's your plan now in terms of mental health? Are you doing, and answer this if you want to or don't if you don't. Are you doing? Uh, are you doing meds? Are you doing therapy? Doing therapy. Yeah, uh, I'm changing therapist though. Oh, yeah. I need a. I need a remix. Yeah. <laughs> what are you therapy. looking for in a therapist? Uh, I'm looking for specific uh, strategies okay. for dealing with PTSD. Okay. Like specifically. Like I don't want to talk about a whole bunch of other shit. I want to go in every day and let's unpack trauma. Black time got style, African push, she got a brother named Charles. If we on that bullshit, I protect my neck with some magical jewels. It can't nothing, y'all take them from me, yeah, yeah. And Cortez, cause I feel like Fabian. My fit got a head like the dome of a stadium. You think it's all good, but it's really get great again. Bag it now, ladies in the clearly Canadian, yeah. Don't turn away from me, look at my eye Brother got heart, but he running with psychos. He always got a gang with him. Hella disciples They always trying to fight though But I stay cool I can't lose No argument I got my jewels I keep my head down Pushing like I'm walking to school Yeah I hold them tight Like infinity gems Policemen Looking at me Like I'm finna be him No My daddy gives a hard man My mother's a ghost I keep my head covered up My brother will roast And y'all be fucking With my head With thoughts tougher than jokes I ran hard My footprints Covered the coast And I be running Through walls Cause I'm buffeting Most of night crawling Tried to creep a smell sucker's approach He see him all charged to get what he provoked The homie time got power so I'm tugging his cloak Yeah, I'm big as hell, can't fit in my fit My sleeves ripped, I'm the king so my ring is legit I bring shit to your front door Wicked your bell, my eyes glow That's a track like called Legendary Iron Hood by Open Mike Eagle
The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Christina Lopez is our web and social media imperator. Kate Moose is executive producer, technical director, Johnny Vince Evans. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and makeitok.org. Make It Okay is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illness. MakeItOkay.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting a conversation about mental illness, that can be awkward, but Make It Okay has tips on what to say, what not to say. That's stories of hope from people who've been there. You can take the pledge to Make It Okay at MakeItOkay.org. Hilariousworld.org is our web home. We're also on Twitter. And come visit us on Facebook. A lot of great conversation there with your fellow Thwadballs. New shows being formed over there. There's a great discussion about songs that help you cope with depression. Pretty interesting and fun to put together a playlist of some of those. It's a good hangout. On our next episode, Embarrassment, Delight, Shame, and Revulsion with Dave Nadelberg. He's the founder of Mortified, a podcast and stage show and TV show where people read aloud their childhood writings and hopefully engender some catharsis for everyone involved. Here's Dave reading a love letter he wrote in high school. Hello, Leslie. How was your day today? Mine's quite well, I must admit. I do hope that yours is a good one because what you're about to read may or may not add an extra color to the rainbow at day's end. Oof. I'm John Moe. Bye now. Would you say I'm a hopeless case? Say it ain't so. Would you say I'm a sad clown? Tell me something I don't know. Would you say I'm a sad clown? Tell me something I don't know.